As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. That was quite the Sunday. Hello listener, I'm Carl Anker and welcome to Talk of the Devils. This is the dedicated Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. Coming up today, we're going to discuss the events at Old Trafford on Sunday, the fallout from the protests against the Glazer family and the board, and the postponement of the game against Liverpool. It was quite the 48 hours in the Manchester United family. Uh, to help me make the most of it, uh, as ever, I'm joined by my fellow Manchester United writer, Laurie Whitwell. Laurie, how are you? How was your attempt to get into Old Trafford on Sunday? Yeah, I'm good, Carl. Um, I suppose this might be quite a long introduction if you're asking me uh, that sort of level of detail. So sorry, Andy, whilst you, you wait there for uh, for your intro. But um, yeah, it was it was different to yours, wasn't it? Because you were in the mix uh, with the guys with the green and gold flares out front. Um, I thought I would be okay driving into Old Trafford because obviously I had a ticket for the game, um, park up and then come and, and see the protest myself afterwards. But by that point, the two loud bangs had gone up um, that seemed to indicate the trigger for, you know, sort of trying to rush the the stewards and, and get into the stadium. Um, and by that point, they'd locked the gate. So when I came back out, I was just sort of in, in no man's land in the car park, you know, very isolated. Um, as it happened, it wasn't the worst place to be because eventually the uh, the fans that have been on the pitch came through um, the other side of the the of the, um, the Charlton stand. So by the Stretford end, uh, came round and, and were just sort of walking uh, through the security staff. You know, I think took a sensible approach in just letting them peacefully walk past, and then they opened the gate and and let them out. Um, and I mean, it was a little bit you know tense, I suppose, because I had like a laptop on, and I thought, are they, they going to sort of look at me as a, a kind of member of the media that needs to be? Uh, told you know the, the, what their protest is all about, but you know, they, were, they were pretty you know pleasant um, all, all told. And then yeah, we were in a position where you know we could overhear security staff talking. Um, little details were coming through. It became apparent very quickly that the game was in serious jeopardy of being called off. And I think most people who understood the situation thought that's where the way it, would, it was going to go. But obviously, it took a little bit of time for that to be confirmed. It's been a remarkable sort of four or five hour stint on the Sunday. But to help us recap it, there was Mr. Andy Mitten with a great little segment on Match of the Day 2 for UK listeners. He is the editor of Unite We Stand and the contributing writer to The Athletic and a thoroughly decent bloke. So, Andy, what did you make of Sunday? 
been a long time coming, Carl. The the roots were sown in 2005, and it was sparked again by the announcement that Manchester United were going to be joining a European Super League and. A lot of other contributory factors led into that. I think the timing of that announcement was so bad because you've got a lot of angry, frustrated people around anyway because of pandemic life, people who wanted to get out. And a lot of my friends who were at that protest on Sunday, they absolutely believed in their reasons for protesting, but they also said it was the first time they'd seen their friends in real life since the Manchester derby in March of of last year. So... It wasn't that they weren't going to socialise, but they were really pleased to see their friends again. So it actually brought a lot of people together. I think the the protesters, 95% of whom were were peaceful, they made the point very clearly. The fact that it made the front pages of newspapers as global as the New York Times showed that by getting the game um, cancelled, postponed, which hadn't been anyone's intention there was nothing premeditated about that uh it it showed the the effect that people are talking about it and the fans want to be listened to their frustrations are clear the strength of feeling is absolutely clear and the glazers have got to listen it followed a very um stormy uh fans forum on friday stormy in so much as a very strong letter went in to senior people at the club and the fans forum are waiting for a response to that. The The protest had been planned. The police knew knew it was coming. Um, a couple of people went too far. But I think the vast majority behaved well and the, the actions of a couple shouldn't invalidate a legitimate protest by football fans. And I think that the fact that fans of other clubs have also been very, very supportive shows that it, it has struck a chord as well. Let's establish a little timeline as to what happened on Sunday. So, as Andy said, that protest, the news of it, and what was going to go ahead was declared before time. The police were aware of it. So the idea was the protest would occur around Old Trafford at 2 o'clock. I arrived at Old Trafford shortly after 1.30, after I saw some messages on social media seeing fans there a little bit earlier. I was at the Trinity statue at 1.30. It was good-natured. There were some fan chants, uh, pro-Solskjaer, anti-Liverpool, that's a little bit anti-Manchester City. I'd say that was perhaps the furthest aggro. There was one gentleman who tried to let go of a flare uh, and then got sang out, what the F is that? And I'd say that's probably the most aggressive it had been for the initial half an hour. Uh, I talked to a number of football fans there. All of them differed slightly as to what they wanted to happen next with Manchester United, but all were unified in the idea that they were there protesting because of the Glazer ownership and they wanted them removed. And the Super League was the straw that broke the camels back. Uh, everyone I talked to was positive about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with some saying he gave us our club back. A number of them were quite happy about Edward Wood's resignation. So I'd say between half one and half two, the majority of the protest was by the Trinity statue. And then they slowly progressed towards the Munich Tunnel by the east stand of Old Trafford just before three o'clock. This is when Laurie is trying to get into the ground. And that's when fans get onto the pitch. Laurie, we were vaguely in text conversation at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> and I heard there was a moment where someone thought you were a protester. <laughs> yeah. So this is after yeah, a very good timeline there, Carl. And, and yeah, you're right. It was about two o'clock when I sort of showed up and thought um, I could get around and, and, and come perhaps see how you were doing over by the protest. But by that point, yeah, it, it, um, it, they'd, they'd got in to uh, the stadium. And this is something that's still been debated 
um, exactly how that happened. We've seen various different footage of fans climbing the gates at the Munich Tunnel, which is where the media go in usually, you know, at the other side though, from the, from the Stretford end. Um, and, and then... Uh, the, the debate is, you know, was the door opened internally? There were some rumours that there was, you know, inside job. Um, I've seen footage where you can see the fans climbing the Munich gate and then get round to the exit door and open it themselves. And then there's other footage on social media that shows the stewards then closing that exit gate. And the the idea is that they had been told not to engage in a, an aggressive way with these fans. You know, they were a small number um, compared to the hundreds that were, were getting through. So I think uh, the idea from Manchester United was that they would take a, a softer approach in that in that regard. And, and that is generally how I think they wanted to um, police the protest. Um, you know, I, I guess when you were there, it was fairly, you know, relaxed. You know, obviously there were a couple of uh, barriers and a few stewards, but it wasn't anything like, you know, policing riot gear or anything like that, which I think is a was the right approach. Because I think if they'd come out looking like that, then it would have aggravated the situation. Um, but yeah, the fans got in. And then obviously they got in via a, a disabled glass door. Yeah, uh, for, this for is lift. around about half three by my estimation yeah. so some extra stewards came around i was mostly looking for the team lineup if, if it got announced <laughs> um uh, it did didn't it it, it got did. announced it did indeed i was sort of going oh cavani's half dropped uh, at yeah. half three and then additional stewards came to to the munich tunnel and then i think that this is the moment where a number of fans managed to get in through a disabled entrance i think yeah there's two different groups wasn't there mm-hmm. yeah so when so when the and then when the first group came through, I was sort of walking with them a little bit just to see how it was going, and then they were let out the the, front, the gate where cars come in, where 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 the team buses come in. So there'd been a bit of a gathering, and I thought maybe they would stay there and and kind of you know sort of block the the buses, you know, um, to sort of get this game postponed or cancelled. And then yeah, as I was walking back, uh, I'm sort of dressed in my my black hoodie with uh, black jeans and, and and black coat, you know, and, and kind of maybe looking a bit uh, like one of one of the uh, the rabble. But um, yeah, so that so three security guards come up to me and go, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm, I'm a journalist," and, and showed them a pass. And as ever, whenever you show you know stewards a pass, they look at it really hard, <laughs> scrutinise. I'm like thinking, does it really take that long to sort of read my name and um, you know the athletic on it? But you know, fair enough to them. You know, it was they were obviously. It's a difficult situation, so they were just trying to make sure that I wasn't, um, I was somebody who should be in there, and and yeah, they'd let me back uh, towards my car, and then we, yeah, we were, we were kind of kept outside at that point. Um, Gary Neville was there, so I think he'd been outside, and, and this is before we got into the stadium. Um, Darren Fletcher was there, um, so so we were all kind of waiting, unclear as to what was happening. We could overhear that a meeting was going ahead, um, and there was you know suggestions that uh, footballs had been nicked to the extent where um, there was there was too few to actually let the game go ahead. Um, I, I'm not sure exa- exactly about the veracity of, of how many balls you need, but that was certainly something that was up for debate at the time. Uh, corner flags, obviously taken so you know different things that would obviously make it it more difficult for for a match to go ahead i suppose with with, you know camera stands um thrown and obviously they're they're the they're the instances that you you know you don't want to see um because i think ultimately the the protest the point of the protest was extremely valid you know there was a lot of uh, emotion to it a lot of feeling and that is the main takeaway that should be um, sort of looked upon, I suppose. Um, and, and listen, nobody condones the, the trespassing either, but United's approach to that particular issue, I think will be let sleeping dogs lie. They will take action on you know, criminal activity in terms of vandalism or anybody, you know, the police officer that obviously got um, hit with a, a broken bottle. Um, that is something that they will take issue with, but trespassing, I think they'll they'll accept that it was a, a, a very special situation, and I suppose 
getting the game cancelled, that is the the spark that has, has really made people sit up and take notice. If this was a protest that went ahead outside the ground and thousands of fans turned up and it was, you know, good for pictures, you know, it would have made an impression for sure. But the actual fact that the game was called off and obviously there was another group over at the Lowry Hotel that was stationed outside um, Manchester United you know, where, where the players were, were held and, and um, you know, could they leave with, with, with the team bus? It was obviously a difficult situation there. So that coordination of, of, uh, of action, of direct action, has had a, the most significant result since the Glazers have taken charge. So, you know, for, for a lot of people, the ends will justify the means in that regard. And, you know, um, and we'll see what, what comes, you know, in, in future. Um, they obviously felt that their voices weren't being heard. And if, if the Glazer family, along with other clubs, felt that they could stage the Super League um, without consultation from the fans, this was a very strong answer to say, you can't. Um, you know, we need to be consulted and we actually want change to be enacted. Indeed. It's interesting you mentioned the corner flag there because I, I was quite close to the vanguard <laughs> and I did see someone hoist aloft said corner <laughs> flag uh, around shortly just before four o'clock. I will say the protest did take a different tinge around about four o'clock. That was, like you mentioned, when, when missiles began to be thrown and, and extra police did come out to secure the East End. So you, you tell me here, because I was speaking to somebody who said that um, that they, you know, what what happened was that the tactical armed, um, sorry, the tactical aid unit came in and, and started to kind of basically push the protesters back. There's different accounts of whether the police were using reasonable force and, and whether fans, you know, where the aggravation came from. There's certain accounts of uh, a fan having his jaw broken, for example, with a police baton. Um, but obviously we've seen the pictures of the police officer with his um, face cut and, and GMP have released a statement saying that there were two um, casualties in, in that from their side. Yeah. What was your impression of being there in that situation? So I'd say around about 3.30 when the, when the lineups come up, we, we see additional security guards dressed in yellow. Uh, and then politely sort of shepherd people. I'm doing a hand motion here. I forgot I'm on podcast. Uh, do a hand motion to, to try and gain space. Uh, and that was mostly well received. It, when you consider, I was talking to Andy about this, when you consider how many protesters were there, numbering in the thousands, considering how many security guards were there, um, that the protesters backed away. I'd say around about 3.45, that's when the, the security guards dressed in blue turn up with batons. Uh, and then it noticeably changes uh, around the east stand. So again, by this disabled uh, fan entrance, uh, there was a moment where I sort of spider sense tingling when I need to get a couple of rows back because something's about to happen. And that was the point shortly just before around about 10 past four, I'd say. That's when bottles began to be thrown and missiles began to be thrown in a general direction. I'd say there was sort of people just deciding to throw things high and up and it wasn't just police being collided. You know, there, there were a number of fans saying they were you know, watching out for, for bottles. And I'd say after that, by quarter past four, mountain police came and then quickly formed a kettle to, to split people into two groups. One group going to the main road away from the, the Trinity statue and the other group going way to the left of which I was part of. And I heard overheard one fan sort of scream, we can do this every single week, which is something I want to bring you in on Andy a little bit here. We, a number of the fans I talk to, I, I, I think we've got some voice notes and some clippings here that, that might be put into the podcast later where I talk to a number of fans. A number of them spoke about how this is just the start and how this is a case of keeping up the momentum from the, the collapse of the Super League. 
we're sick of the Glaziers. 16 years ago we started this off, we always knew the Glaziers were a big problem and now all English football know they're a big problem because they'd have been the absolute ringleaders as part of this European Super League. We're sick of the Glaziers and what they're doing with the club. The, the debt, the £2 billion that they've uh, taken to America. The three biggest clubs in Eng English football, Liverpool, Man United and Arsenal, all owned by Americans. Too much money's going out of the, the game across to America. The hardcore fans have just had enough. This is just the start of it. We want our clubs back and we want the German model, the 50 plus one. Manchester United are too big for the Glazers, much too big. Whether we own the club outright, we're not really bothered about that. We just want to say in the running of our own club. The fans have made the voices heard. The club have had a letter delivered to them in the fans forum last Friday with a series of demands and the ball is in the club's court. The proposals have been put forward to the club and at the moment I don't think there's any more direct protests planned but how do you control the strength of feeling? If the fans continue mm -hmm. to feel that they're not being listened to then it's not just going to vanish, not just going to go away because you were in the middle of people on Sunday and you saw the variety of the people there. You saw the strength of feeling there. It's not just going to vanish. And it was mainly against the Glazers, but also you saw some of the banners, 50 plus one. It's about the ownership in football that the current system needs big improvement, it needs to be better regulated, that future takeovers like the Glazer one in 2005 shouldn't be allowed to happen, that clubs can't just say we're joining a European Super League without consulting anyone really. It wasn't just the fans, the players didn't even know about it, the manager didn't even know about it. So the club are well aware and, and will continue to, to talk and there's a lot of good people work at United. They've made really good efforts to engage with the supporters. In big improvements from when David Gill completely cut the cord of communication after the original takeover. And that was a wrong thing for him to do. So this is a story which is which is still developing. I think Sunday made a, a significant statement. I think a lot of people are sympathetic to the cause of Manchester United fans even people who might not be football fans. Some of them absolutely want to buy into the, they're all folks. Well, they're not all folks. They're not. Some were. The vast majority were not. So this is, this is still in play, but fans who feel ignored and exploited, they feel that they found the voice with that form of direct action. Would it still have made so many headlines if they just sat peacefully outside before the game? I don't think it would have done. And... Because of what happened, that's why, you know, people like ourselves were receiving calls from global media. It wasn't just a small story, you know, tell us about the frustrations. This stopped the biggest game in in English football. And it wasn't premeditated in so much as nobody said, right, we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do that. A lot of it just happened naturally. This is the first game in Premier League history that has been postponed due to fan protests. This is, you know, Manchester United level is meant to be the banner fixture, one of the big fixtures you look at in, in Premier League. 
Uh, I will say of the crowd I saw, I saw men, women, children across all ages. So not only did I see green and gold kits and green and gold scarves, I also saw some of the uh, the new zebra kit. Uh, I also saw some of the trendier modern kits of of the Adidas and Nike age. So I saw fans sing about Anderson. I saw fans sing about Scott McTominay. I didn't realize he had a chant. I did indeed hear the Edison Cavani chant for the very first time at Old Trafford under uh, interesting circumstances as well. It is, to my mind, the biggest crowd I've seen in Manchester in my seven months of living here. It's number the thousands it will probably more people outside of old trafford that will be allowed inside old trafford at the end of the season for their final home game we've got two articles on the athletic right now one that went out on the sunday laurie myself and a number of the athletic manchester united team reporting what exactly happened on the sunday another one that's just gone live on tuesday morning explaining what possibly happens next including social media campaigns around the 50 plus one so there's a hashtag being used currently called protect the legacy that has now reached over a hundred thousand signatures uh, asking for the 50 plus one rule. And once a petition goes over 100,000, it has to be discussed in government. So this will be a constantly evolving and moving story. Uh, and all I can ask is, is everyone keep safe. Everyone look after each other. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So 50 plus one is something that a number of fans are definitely clamoring for. I discussed why some fans were interested in 50 plus one uh, on Sunday, and they, you know, a number of fans displayed varying levels of knowledge of the scheme. Quite a few said there are pitfalls to it. It's not a perfect system when you consider the uh, football club that is sponsored by an energy drink that will not be named on this podcast <laughs> and uh, by Munich's relationship with the 50 plus one rule. But Laurie, you've been talking with some experts and some very clever people around the athletic on the 50 plus one rule. And could that possibly be a thing brought over to British football. Well, I suppose it would take um, in that situation, it would take government legislation, wouldn't it? I mean, Boris Johnson um, was very strong in his talk with uh, fans on the day after the Super League was announced. Um, legislative bomb was the obviously key word. And um, yet yeah, we'll see if the appetite remains there. It does feel like there's an opportunity there for, for politicians. You know, Keir Starmer has been involved. Andy Burnham has been involved where they actually do want to take some kind of action and, and, and realise that independent regulation is something that, you know, is needed across the football pyramid, not just for Manchester United's sake. Um, and, and whether, you know, obviously the legalities of that, you know, it might be very difficult to get through. Um, so, you know, fans are also asking for, uh, this is quite a specific um, and, and crucial uh, request from Must, it's in their letter, um, was for a share scheme to be enacted where, 
Joe Glazer, the Glazer family, look at it and go, okay, well, actually, we will sell some shares, proper shares, so not the the class of shares that only have one-tenth of the voting right of the, the shares that the Glazers all own. And we'll let this out to the world, you know, millions of Manchester United fans across the world. Could you get a system where enough fans buy enough shares and actually the Glazers think that's a good value for our shares. You know, the, the, the New York Stock Exchange, the price hasn't really risen that much since they launched in 2012. Is it, Are investors really getting their money's worth? If they actually floated properly with fans, with proper voting rights, would they get more money? That's that's one of the questions that Muster are asking. And that that is a, a crucial point. And it, listen, maybe it still is fanciful because it's the Glazers. They have the ownership. They understand what the asset is worth and what they might be willing to sell it for. We discussed in the piece that you referred to earlier, Carl, this morning about who could actually buy Manchester United outright. You know, Saudi Arabia were mentioned previously, weren't they? I don't think it ever got to a stage of the Glazers ever showing uh, a willingness to engage above a certain you know percentage which was a kind of token percentage really that they wouldn't you know have any controlling rights and then we can get into the different debates about would United fans actually prefer to be owned by Saudi Arabia you know with a, a regime with a, a difficult human rights record to say the least um, you know and then you look at high net worth individuals Jeff Bezos you know would he be at all interested and is that really better than what they've got already clearly the fact that the Glazers used you know banks money and leverage the takeover and that debt is now on the club and has never been removed is the issue is is the is the wound that is never going to heal because you know how on earth is that allowed really um and fans are basically paid for the glazers to own the club um and so but the share option could it present a realistic solution to this where the fans then have representation and you know no private individual is allowed to own more than 49% um that could take government legislation or or there could be enough uh, momentum behind it where the Glazers think actually this is the most uh, sensible solution because you know the Super League has failed um, Project Big Picture didn't get off the ground um, so what else can you um, do to maximise the revenue that you can take in as Manchester United what else can you do to raise the value um, are we already at saturation point with the commercial partnerships that they've got Team Viewer. Um, the new shirt sponsor, fine, a very good deal, it seems, you know, in a pandemic, but not as much as Chevrolet. So have we plateaued in terms of what Manchester United can actually do on the commercial front? Interesting you mentioned the sponsors here, because we do have mm. a question from one of our listeners, Karen at Karen Jett, who says, is there any information as to how the sponsors would have viewed the protest? And uh, what do they think about the Glazers wanting to join ESL without informing them? Now we know, for example, uh, Liverpool's, one of Liverpool's sponsors, denounced the Super League and removed their sponsorship of Liverpool Football Club over the Super League and whatnot. Do we have any indication that one of the sponsors of, of Manchester United, one of their many, many sponsors, might be similarly disgruntled? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe this is something Andy can help me on as well, but I, I see that, I mean, they, they had it in 2005 when they were, you know, they thought the best way to um, stop the Glazers was to go after sponsors, but I still feel that fans will view that as a legitimate um, method of, of, of you know, getting their view heard. If sponsors that have paid a lot of money to be associated with Manchester United then come under attack from those fans with protests where, you know, wh- whoever the sponsor might be is is denigrated in a, in a placard or, you know, their rating on certain, um, you know, websites uh, is... Is, is sent through the floor because people, you know, that support Manchester United have, have criticised them and given them one star. Would that actually have an impact? It certainly, you know, provoke some interesting conversations. I think behind the scenes. I don't know. What do you think, Andy? 
So there's two things. One, the, the state of the economy and current sponsors during the pandemic. So naturally, you know, United are sponsored by, by Aeroflot, for example. Airlines are having a really tough time during the pandemic. So there were a couple of leads that United were chasing up and United had representation in Davos a couple of years ago. They're going where the real, real money is and they're trying to make connections to bring new sponsors in. And it's been very difficult for them. And I spoke to Richard Arnold, the managing director, a couple of weeks ago about this. And he said, all that face-to-face interaction has gone. You're now trying to build trust um, through, through Zoom meetings. They were pleased about the team viewer sponsorship, which you can look at it two ways. Uh, it's not a huge increase, but then again, that Chevrolet deal was absolutely ridiculous when it came in. And, and even sceptical people were saying, how on earth have United managed to, to pull that off? I spoke to Jim O'Neill, who's far better uh, versed in finance than I am. He feels that commercial revenue is plateauing. Other clubs are catching up. United's methods are no longer seen as being trailblazing. Then the second point is, when there has been discontent before, the club have been able to say to sponsors, look, this is just a minority of people. Just ignore them. These people are not core fans. They're not match-going fans. These are people just spamming. They're they're using bot accounts. Uh, They're just frustrated because United are not signing the players that they wanted. And there was was a lot of that in June 2019. People were unhappy about the transfers that, that summer. This is different. This is totally different. This is feet on the ground, which is which is the hardest thing to get. If you remember, there were some calls for a protest in June 19 and 26 people turned up. But what you're getting now is everyone. You're seeing United fans being united because there's times where no one hates Manchester United fans more than Manchester United fans themselves. It can be a very fractured fan base at times. And that, that's normal. It's such a huge group of people. You can't say that anyone speaks for the fans. What is a fan? Someone who goes to every single game and all the pre-season tours or someone who's never been to a match and describes themselves as a huge Manchester United fan because they wake up at X o'clock in the morning. All these people legitimately claiming to be Manchester United fans. So it's not good for them. There's no positive can come out of this. And United have already had to structure and change the way they deal with the sponsors because some sponsors have said, well, I've paid for this and I'm not getting this because there's no games. So you've seen a slight tweaking of the social media strategy where it goes out, you know, it's today is Sir Bobby Charlton's birthday and wasn't Bobby great. And underneath in the corner, you'll see a link to a Chilean wine partner. And it's easy to take the mickey out of that. And and people absolutely do. To be fair, United, they're just trying to maintain and retain the money which they've got from the sponsors in the first place. I've never had a problem with United doing all these multiple deals if it means that all that money is going into improving the team or into the stadium. But as Laurie said, the, 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 the big elephant in the room is that so much of it is is going out. It's being lost. It's, it's paying off um, the, the, the debts. It's interest payments. Now, United's angle is we can afford this. This is our business model. But then you come back and say £1.7 billion has been taken out of the club. You can't dress that up in any other way than that sounding horrendous. In terms of ways the Glazer ownership could make things seem less horrendous, there is the question mark over potential transfers and the uh, rumoured war chest that we always do every single summer. Uh, I remember I did talk to one fan at the protest about their opinion on Igona Solskjaer, which was, again, very, very positive, who mentioned that Solskjaer needed to be backed 
I also asked said fan, would proper backing, you know, a large amount of money given to the Oligon Social by the Glazers, change their opinion on the ownership, to which they went, that's a difficult part, not for me, but I can see some fans might change. We've got one question here from at Captain K99, who simply says, if we, Manchester United, sign Haaland and Grealish, we'll all be forgiven. Now, anytime someone asks me a question with the word if in it, I my first response is to go if. So, Laurie, is there any indication that the Glazer family could hand over a large sum of money to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to spend in the summer to placate the fan base? I would be surprised if they saw this as an opportunity to spend a load of money and, and get people back on side. Um, it's just not really been in their way of operating previously. Um, they've obviously spent money on transfers as you know, Andy, you were on match of the day too, when the net spend was brought up um, by the, the Glazer owners and, um, and, and yeah, they've obviously spent money on transfers, but have they spent it wisely all that time? You know, there's very large questions about that. And as Andy says, it's, it's not this case that because you've spent money on transfers that then negates the, enormous amount of money that's gone out of the club through you know interest rates through um, the debt through bank loans through dividends to the you know the directors which you know united are the only club in the premier league that pays directors dividends it's about 20 million pounds a year that goes to the glazers 2022 23 overall to 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 the shareholders um because the glazers own sort of 20 74 75% of the club so yeah so that you can't then say well it's even I, I even take issue with the Glazers giving Solskjaer money as a, as a way of framing it because it's Manchester United's money it's not the Glazers money to uh, bestow it's not like they're some benefactor um, so it would it's basically do the figures add up to make it possible for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to buy some players and you know, obviously the pandemic has, uh, has hit, so there's obviously going to be some room for belt tightening, but um, really they, they should have the funds to commit to a, you know, a significant outlay, um, you know, for Manchester United, you know, we're told about them being the biggest club in the world and, and the commercial revenue incubating them better than most from the pandemic. And that is the one aspect, I suppose, that you know, people that would defend the Glazers point to that their approach to commercialism um, has then led to this point. But as we've discussed already, is it at a plateau? Is it actually, you know, um, has it reached its maximum? And would United have already have, have made that kind of money anyway without the Glazers being involved? That is a, a genuine point that I think people um, you know can argue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't sense that the Glazers would suddenly look at these protests and go, oh, actually, we need to spend more money and that will hopefully solve everything. Um, but uh, equally, I think that, that it shouldn't be framed as... They they obviously, you know, Joel Glazer obviously decides what money is spent, you know, ultimately in, in the macro sense of things. Um, you know, he's very involved in the day-to-day running of the club and, you know, United would not be signing... United didn't sign Jaden Sancho last summer because of you know, Joel Glazer effectively saying, this is how much money we've got to spend. This is how much, you know, he does get involved in that level of, of conversation where he thinks a player is worth a certain amount because he looks at the data. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that it's going to be an interesting topic to look at, you know, and I, I think, I don't know, I, I think most fans, you know, that understand the ownership of the club, certainly that were there protesting, um, that are match-going fans would not be swayed by, 
you know, United going out and buying, um, you know, X amount of players for X amount of money because I think they understand that the, the game is is larger than that. That the the point is larger than that. You know, they a lot of people weren't were, were happy that the game was postponed because it it was a real line in the sand. It was a real incredible moment for fan movement. So, but other people would go, well, I wanted to watch that game on Sunday, but I think the people that were there would would realise that the the the, the, the battle is, is bigger than that one afternoon and, and that sort of the same applies for transfer spending. Andy, I want to get your thoughts on this. We've, we've mentioned your segment on Match of the Day 2 now. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you for a little bit of a follow-up. Can transfer fees be a way to placate the fan base? Is there any way the Glazer family can placate the fan base other than leaving? There's no chance all the fans will be placated by anything. Uh, the, the Glazers um, are not popular. They've never been popular. Someone tried to tell me last year, you know, Joel, Joel's a big red. He really is. And I'm just thinking that line will just never, ever wash. He just won't do. You, you can't dress it up. You can't spin it. You can't put PR into it. Now, what's the way around it for him? Just turn up in the Stratford end next year, start buying everyone a pint. <laughs> he wouldn't even be safe to do that, I don't think. At the moment, clearly there are a number of fans for whom the transfers are the be all and end all. And that's pretty sad, actually, isn't it? They're not bothered about the bigger picture. They're just bothered about transfers. And there will be a number of fans who, if Manchester United signed Haaland tomorrow and Grealish and Messi and Varane or whoever, whoever, some of them were just, that's great, that's great. Forget the protest, that was last week's story. And unfortunately, fans' loyalty works in the favour and the passion works in the favour, but the fickleness works against them because they change the tune pretty quickly. It's all right, people like me saying money's been squandered on Alexis Sanchez. I celebrated the arrival of Alexis Sanchez and I don't know anybody who didn't. And even people in football, I had a coach say to me in his first ever game, this is what top money buys you, top, top player. So someone's got to take a bigger view than the, the monthly, you know, well, Luke Shaw's great because he's playing well. This is fantastic. Give him a 15-year deal. Someone's got to take a longer-term view on these things. And it's a complex one because look at Newcastle United. You mentioned and touched on the Saudi ownership of them. The majority of Newcastle fans, including your matchgoers, were prepared to give Anything up to have a better chance of winning the League Cup. The ownership wasn't an issue to them at all. I've always said with Manchester United, they don't need to be owned by anybody. They don't need a benefactor. They're big enough and strong enough. And if the fans could buy shares and have genuine ownership, that might be a win-win. The Glazers would see the share price, which has been pretty disappointing over a medium term, go up. If the fans genuinely felt involved, and, and finally, interestingly, I spoke last week to Martin Edwards and Martin was the chairman who took the club public in 91. And he was saying how disappointed everybody was at the initial uptake. Fans didn't buy up the shares. And you're thinking with the benefit of hindsight, if only, if only, if only. But as he correctly pointed out, then it was a domestic club. Now it's hugely international. Then the idea of people buying shares was what posh boys did because they knew stockbrokers. Now, technology has changed everything. There are trading platforms where you can buy shares just like that. And I think if there was some kind of share option to Manchester United fans, 
with with genuine influence, not with your watered down shares. So that if you own, you know, under the way the Glazers have structured it at the moment, you can buy ninety nine percent of the club, but you can't decide the price of beer. You know, underneath the stand, it's ridiculous what they've done to it. They've got such a stranglehold on everything associated with the club. That's another reason why you're seeing this descent and why people want things to change. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. We're going to put a pin in talking about the protests now and get involved in some of the things that's going to happen on the pitch in the next coming weeks. Manchester United are going to be playing two games this week. On Thursday, they will be against Roma. And then on Sunday, they'll be playing against Aston Villa. Roma is the second leg of the Europa League tie, which the first leg was brilliant, wasn't it, Laurie? Seems as if we can start booking tickets for Poland. Well, Andy already has, hasn't he? But um, we'll get on to that. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's we're sort of you know obviously we missed the game on Sunday. There was there was no, nothing between Man United and Liverpool to discuss. So yeah, let's let's throw it back to Thursday. And Old Trafford was a great a great match. You know, um, the the first half the standard did leave me thinking: Is this really a European semi final? Um, because United had flickered into life. You know, and that first goal was fantastic, wasn't it? The one touch passing, Pogba's strength and subtlety. Uh, Cavani's pass and Bruno's finish absolutely superb um, but then it sort of felt like United sort of gave Roma far too much credit because you know Roma were dropping like flies um, they, they could hardly string a pass together but all of a sudden they were 2-1 up and you're thinking is this semi-final hoodoo going to extend um, and I quite enjoyed uh, the afterwards I found out you know what Paul Scholes and Owen Hargreaves said at half time and how they said a change needed to be made and Mason Greenwood needed to come on Solskjaer didn't make any changes and then afterwards was told about this I, I could sense a certain um, mm-hmm. sort of anger from, from Solskjaer he was seething uh, you know when he talked about you know those guys upstairs might want to try and um, manage a few times and obviously Scholes to be fair to him did um, take that tongue in cheek and said I, I did try at Oldham um, slightly different dynamics I guess there but um, but yeah I, I thought f- credit to Solskjaer for sticking with his team and the fact that he just he, he knew being there you could tell that United were the better team they just needed to click into gear stop making silly mistakes and play their football and the second half was absolutely wonderful for that um, I mean Cavani got two didn't he could have got a hat-trick that finish into the top corner was was a sight to behold um, from where we were sat you know you could sort of see it pinging right in, in there and you know I mean the speed of it was uh, was incredible um, but yes yeah, really good I mean Bruno Pogba and um, and Cavani were, were were sensational, really, as, as a trio. Um, and you just think that those three on form um, can can really go go to town on teams. Um, and you know, Pogba on the left is seems to be where he is enjoying his football. That obviously brings um, a sort of question over where Marcus Rashford plays. He played on the right and. I think he can do some damage there. You know, he's got a good cross on him um, and I think he was slated to play up top against Liverpool before it was cancelled. So I suppose that's one area just to kind of debate and and, and see where it's going to go. But yeah, looking forward to a semi-final against, you know, in in Rome. I mean, they have 
come back from difficult defeats before, you know, in, in situations like that. Barcelona um, certainly um, felt the the wrath of them. And uh, Liverpool, I think, were, were kind of close, weren't they, to going out that one time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we shouldn't count our chickens too much, but I think if you're four goals to the good up uh, going into a game, you should really see it through. 6-2 was the first leg. I, I want to just tee up a couple of very, very intelligent things Andy said last week. First thing you mentioned about Chris Smalling and uh, how he's a good player, but we did discuss there are some known weaknesses to his play. Um, we also mentioned Edison Cavani, and I think during the game, all three of us independently gave messages along the lines of, he simply must not be allowed to leave. Uh, and Andy, I remember after the game, you said something along the lines of Pogba, Bruno and Edison Cavani are three world-class players in a team that needs a couple more pieces. Yeah, I did. And a few people quite rightly said, what about Luke Shaw? And I was just talking about the combinations which had led to the goals. And as Laurie said, they, they, <laughs> these players sparking. Sometimes class just shows. And you saw that with those goals. I mean, Cavani, he's got to stay. And I think he will stay. And I, I was speaking to people... Hang on. I was speaking what? to people in, in Uruguay. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what I know. He, he told the club six weeks ago he didn't want to stay. He told them. Mm-hmm. And, and his reasons were not financial. It was about his family and stuff we've discussed before. But I was speaking to people in Uruguay um, during the game on, on Thursday, and there was an absolute shift in the tone, and that they, no, they fully, which has shifted even further since Thursday night where they fully expect him to stay in Manchester. So if that is to happen, that that I think is great news. I think the sun is coming out. He's going to play in front of fans. He's still an absolutely top-class player. I know he could have gone back to South America and stood on a plinth with his arms out overlooking Rio de Janeiro. He's that good. But he should just stay in Manchester for another year or two. And I really think he'll enjoy it. But that excited me, that second half against Rome. It really did. He's scoring goals now. And all the points that Oli made, he's finally got fit. He's got over his injuries, his suspensions, his COVID, his arriving late, his quarantining. And it's great that we're now seeing someone who's having more of a Latin effect than, than a Radamel Falcao effect. So let's hope that, that he does stay. Roma, I mean, United are strong, strong favourites. I've booked my flights to Gdansk. I'm also going to Rome. I've just had my my PCR test to go to Rome. Got to be careful still. You know, you can't go out there. This isn't the dead rubber of 07. And I, I spoke for the Athletic last week to a load of the lads who played in that dead rubber. And it was really interesting, the fringe players. United were through. They'd won the previous five group games. This isn't. Roma aren't quite the team that they were couple of years ago they're not the seventh in the league but you go out there and play a load of kids and you're going out the Europa League they've still done very well to get to this stage they've not got the fans behind them Olympico normally is amazing the atmosphere people talk about the running track detracting from the atmosphere absolute you go to Rome right and it is miles miles better than any English ground that noise there on both curvers the south and the north, each one's normally Lazio, one's normally Roma. None of that will be there, but just be careful. And I'm sure Ollie will will be careful, which probably means Donny van der Beek will get like 45 seconds at the end of the match. I hope I'm wrong now. <laughs> I mean, you can you can play a Donny, but I've seen a few people saying play the kids. No, that would be that really would be a mistake. One thing that I've noticed about Solskjaer in in the press conferences and whatnot is how he's constantly reinforced fitness 
for players like Pogba and Bruno Fernandes and Cavani. It was never personality. It was never adjustment. It was simply, we're just waiting for these players to get fit. And once they get fit, they're going to be fine. Well, that was that was one of my points in the piece that I wrote from the game in terms of Paul Pogba and how masterful I think Solskjaer's management of him has been. Um, speaking to people that you know understand that situation, Solskjaer separated Pogba from Mino Raiola in, in his mind. So you know he criticised Raiola, but embraces Paul Pogba. He knows him from having you know known him and worked with him um, when he was reserve team manager years ago, um, and he's. he's he put him, put him straight back in the team against Man City on that left position that has now become his, you know, sort of go-to slot. And um, I think he just, that, that and the, the way he talks to him and the, the way he encourages him, I think that has really, you know, benefited him. And, you know, we, we, we thought it was over for, for Paul Pogba at Manchester United. And, the you know, the noises that I'm hearing, as Andy, I think, has alluded to before, are that actually he would be open to staying and, and potentially signing a new contract if the contract was you know, good enough and, and, and made, you know, came up to certain standards because, you know, they, they only enacted the the clause on his, um, the one year extra clause when they, you know, ha- when there was sort of rumours about more talk earlier this season. So they haven't actually come to Pogba with a, with a contract offer as yet. So still that is to be decided, but yeah, it's more of a, of a positive situation there than it was before. And I think you have to give Solskjaer credit for that because it would have been very easy for a manager to, you know, have a go at the agent, have a go at the player, tell the player you need to sort your agent out. He understood the dynamic there. And and, and Pogba, credit to him as well. He's come through it. He's looked at himself, I think, and thought, you know, what can I do to be better in this team? Darren Fletcher, I think, has been helpful with him in that regard. Um, sort of little positions that he could take up um, and little uh, sort of movements that he can make and, and ways to sort of view that position. I think he's been really good. Um, so yeah, it feels like a wholesome situation, that one. Um, hopefully it sustains until the summer and, and we'll see what happens. But the other aspect of that game against Rome that I really enjoyed was Solskjaer at 3-2, 4-2, telling his team to keep going. Harry Maguire in the 90, 91st minute telling the team to keep going. I mean, they were 60 up at this point, but they understood that this that game was could kill the tie. You know, they it wasn't just a case of, you know, we want to add a flourish to this. This was a very, there was a very meaningful reason for them for going for more goals and they sensed it, they understood it. You know, they got a four goal cushion. If it had been 4-2, you know, that would have still been a good win, but it's not, game over like it feels like it is I know we're still sort of giving Roma I don't know like a, a small uh, slither of a chance but that was what appealed to me and, and at the end of the game so nine times that a Manchester United team has scored five goals or more under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer it was two uh, under Van Gaal, Moyes and Jose Mourinho and I think that just shows why as you found on uh, Sunday outside Old Trafford there was such affection for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because it feels like that's the kind of football that Manchester United fans want yes there's been some nil-nils probably too many this season but it's a balance you know throughout the whole campaign and, and I think ultimately it shows that's the kind of style that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants to implement they really feel on field as if they're on the verge of something I also want to reiterate that Paul Pogba played that first leg against Rome without having eaten food the entire day well the first time he ate food was around about three o'clock in the morning. Um, he had a quick energy drink and a banana, I believe, at full time before he was selected for a random <laughs> drug test. And then he did his press conference where he said he wants to be the English guy who learns how to tackle better because he gave away yet another penalty. But I think Manchester United look good. I know Laurie will be interested in how to get to Poland. I think it's a five-day quarantine for people in the United Kingdom, whereas Andy will be there as well. I will most likely be in a tactics truck somewhere on the 27th of May. I think we might be done 
for this week's episode of Talk of the Elves. We'll be back sometime next week to recap the second leg, as well as the game against Aston Villa, as well as any other further developments. Before we wrap up, I just want to say, while there is so much Manchester United news going on, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the Athletic because we'll be producing reads throughout the week, throughout the months. So you can subscribe for the special price of $3.99 a month for the next six months. That's 40% off the price of a full subscription. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, so all you need to do is go to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. This might be one of the longest episodes we've done, but there was a lot going on in the world of Manchester United, despite the lack of a game. Thank you so much, Lowe, for joining me this week. Cheers, Carl. Cheers, Andy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Andy, I told you Cavani was going to stay, so I'm going to just be smug this week. Thanks for joining me. Cheers, Carl. Cheers, Laurie. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and thank you, listener, for joining me. Uh, this has been Talk of Devils, a Manchester United podcast brought to you from The Athletic. We'll see you sometime next week. The Athletic.